This is Undaunted Life, a man's podcast. I'm your host, Kyle Thompson. Let's get into it. Take no part in the unfruitful works of darkness, but instead expose them. Guys, that is Ephesians 5.11. And if it seems like we do that scripture a lot, it's because I absolutely love that scripture. If you're wondering where we got the idea to push back darkness, it's just from there. So we're going to get into today's subject matter. I'm excited to talk to you guys. It's kind of like, you know, this is like my second time back in the studio. It's kind of like riding a bike, but it's like the bike's tires might be flat and your legs might be broken, but I'm absolutely doing my best to kind of get back in the groove for you fellas. But before we move on to one, (laughs) see? Messing up right from the beginning. It's going to be a terrible show today. I want you to leave us a five-star rating and review, okay? We've gotten some one-star ratings, and we'll get more into, into why here in just a second. But every time you guys leave us a five-star rating and a review, that helps us with the algorithms, which helps people discover our show because it'll show up in that kind of carousel and uh, tell people, hey, if you listen to this show, you might like that show. So even if you guys don't listen on Apple Podcasts, If you would, if you have an iPhone, which should be most of you, go to Apple Podcasts, look up our show, give us a five-star rating and a quick review. And just last week, I announced our new segment called Quick Hitters, right? And and we already got some good feedback. Hey, that's going to be a good idea. You know, I'd love for you to get into some more content. Like today, we're doing Q&A. So I'm kind of blowing up my own new segment, right? Because since we're doing q and I'm going to violate the new announcement because we've not done Q&A in a very, very long time. And we'll, we'll get more into kind of what we're going to do for that. But here's the quick, quick hitters for this week. So this is going to be super, super duper fast. I'm just going to run through this list real quick because normally I would kind of give all of these things a little bit more play, if not do an entire show about them. Maybe we'll do it down the road, but I saw a lot of tweets that were similar to this. So here's your quick, quick hitters. Netflix shares are crashing. CNN plus is shutting down after only one month and $300 million invested in the project. Spotify removes the Obama podcast, but not Joe Rogan. Disney is stripped of their special governing powers in the state of Florida. Masks were ruled unlawful on public transportation to include planes and, uh, and trains and all that. And Elon Musk has secured funding for Twitter takeover. So all of those things, again, a lot of people on Twitter have been posting things similar to that. I'd give you my thoughts even deeper on all those things, but all that come, kind of comes into the same thing. That if you're very much so on the left, if you're pushing a leftist agenda, a woke agenda, if you're going in that direction, the marketplace seems to be pushing back against you. And for most of these people, they don't have a a tremendous level of self-awareness. So they're probably going to be looking outwardly, like what's wrong with everybody else as opposed to looking inwardly. But this is one of those interesting turning points, which I I don't know if this is like a seminal moment in our country where a lot of the woke agenda and all those things is going to be rejected. But there is this shift now to where things that used to be, you know, conservatives like, ah, you know, being defensive, ah, don't really bother me, just kind of leave me alone, you know, do your own thing, just kind of leave me alone. It seems like a lot more conservatives, a lot more people that are, that take the, you know, the Bible seriously or the Constitution seriously or the Bill of Rights seriously or just free speech in general and, and freedom of expression and liberty seem to be pushing back now. Because a lot of the people, that's why I love the open marketplace, because CNN thought that you liked Don Lemon and Brian Stelter and all their other personalities. And the thing was, is like, it it doesn't make any sense because if you weren't going to listen to them and watch them for free, why would you think people would pay a monthly subscription fee to listen to those people and watch those people? It's this level of unawareness from people that think that way, that they're just going to be completely insulated. 
So I'm interested to see how that works out. But guys, we've got Q&A for today. This is what I'm going to tell you. It's going to be a little different uh, Q&A. I think this is Q&A volume 19. Normally, I will compile all of the questions that come in during a certain period of time, you know, from the emails we get, from the DMs we get, things like that. And then I'll go through all of them and I'll kind of prepare my answers for each one of those. Some of them kind of sneak in without preparation and I just kind of have to flow. Well, this list of questions, these are all evergreen questions, okay? And these questions were compiled in January, okay? So I have not seen the majority of these questions since January, and I've prepared zero responses for the things I'm going to say. So everything I say today is just going to be right off the top of the dome. I do not have notes in front of me except for what the questions are. So this is a little bit of an experiment. This could be amazing. This could be an abject failure, but hey, I'm here for the car crash if you guys are. So let's go ahead and launch into the first one here. Why did you (laughs) see? Here's the problem. When I don't read these questions, I'm going to kind of be giving you my natural reactions here. Why did you ruin your show with advertisements? So I'm pretty sure I answer this on, you know, Q&A 17 or 18, because yes, we do have advertisements on our show now. So we have programmatic ads that will run at the beginning of the show and in the middle of the show, you know, during, during little verbal breaks or something like that. I've, I've done some reads uh, for some advertisers here on the air. And if you go to our, um, our, I was just telling you from the beginning to go to our ratings. If you look at our one-star ratings that have come in here recently, almost all of them have something to do with advertisements. Okay. The other ones just think I'm, you know, I'm bigoted and racist and horrible and, and awful and not even a Christian. And how dare I say these things? And, you know, th- those are fine. But a lot of people are just mad. They're so mad that there's advertisements on my show right now. And so I think this is the last time that I'm going to address this because we're going to get more advertisements because our, our show is going to continue to grow and grow and grow. Like, I think the last time I looked at the numbers, we're like top six or seven percent of podcasts worldwide. Right now, I mean, there, there's kind of a wide gap between the tippy top of that percentile and the bottom of it. But, you know, we're not a small show. There's a lot of people paying attention to what we're doing. There are brands that are reaching out. We, you know, we're only coalescing the, the ones into, our, into the fold here that we believe in and that we've tried out the products and all that. So there's going to be more ad reads. There's going to be a lot of stuff that comes out. But here's going to be my, my thing moving forward that people with, that complain with ads. Here's my response to them. And if, if you're one of those people, here's my response to you. I don't think you should be paid to do your job either. Because that's what advertisement dollars, that's what ad dollars are. The, the people whose ads are on their shows, that's how they pay money to those people. That's how these people can make money to feed their families and to grow their business, okay? So I'm not gonna apologize for putting advertisements on this show at all. Are you out of your mind? Like imagine if somebody walked into your workplace and said, yeah, 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 I, I think you should work uh, 50, 60 hours this week and, and do all these things and prepare it to make sure that you're doing good work and working under the Lord and all those different things. But you really shouldn't be paid to do that. Like, how do you guys think that people, that podcasters make money? Like we get sponsorships and we, we get some in-kind deals and like, that's how we make this thing go. And then you can write books and get paid for that. And just think about it. Every time you go and see a guest speaker somewhere, that person's being paid to do that for the most part, right? Do you think they shouldn't be paid for that? They should just donate their time and attention and preparation and travel and time away from their family for free. Like you would never say that. And this, there was a particularly egregious thing that came up and I hope this guy's still listening because I definitely encourage him to do that. He sent me an email and it was a very well thought out email and very well written, which I can appreciate because he wrote it and then obviously went back and, you know, read it again so he can correct any typos or anything like that. And he was just basically telling me how bad it was that we have advertisements on our show now. Ah, I really liked your show. And then, then you put all these ads in there and all these different things and, and all that. And, you know, ignoring the fact that that guy probably listens to a bunch of other shows that have ads. Because because what, if you listen to Joe Rogan Experience or the Ben Shapiro Show or Glenn Beck's show or Matt Walsh show or, or just Jordan Peterson show, any pick a show, 
there are ads, either programmatic or read on the air. And yeah, it can get a little annoying, you know, every three minutes whenever Ben Shapiro's breaking in with an ad, but that, that's how he's making money for the Daily Wire. That's how they're able to produce the content that they do. And so one thing that I did that was interesting with this guy is before I responded to him, I went to our donation page on our website. So it's through DonorBox. And thank you again to all you guys that donate to kind of keep keep what we're doing here alive and to keep it moving forward because the overwhelming majority of how we keep the lights on here is through donations. It's not through advertisements, believe it or not. Those of you complaining about advertisements, it's mainly the donors that keep us moving. So I go to our donation page and I look up this guy's name and wouldn't you know it, he's never donated to us. And so I very politely responded to him. If you send me an email, I'll usually send you a voice memo back or something like that just because it's easier and faster for me. Uh, and, you know, it's kind of like you get your own little mini podcast. And I said, it's interesting to me that you're complaining about the advertisements on the show and yet you've never donated to this ministry. So you want everything that this podcast is. You want everything that you get and can glean from the devotionals. And you want the live speaking and you want all the other things that we have coming down uh, the pipeline later on this year and into next year. But you don't want to pay for it. I find that very, very interesting. Now, I have to fight that that urge myself as well. Like, oh, I don't want to pay 99 cents to have a month-long subscription to this place. I just want to read this one article, right? Oh, I don't want to sit here and listen to these ads on this show. I shouldn't have to listen to these ads because I'm special and I'm what I get it. Like, I have a lot of that, that, that part in me as well. But if there's a content creator out there that you support and that you like, like, don't just support him with your attention. Support him with your dollars. I know Dennis Prager with PragerU talks about that all the time. It's like he wants to give money all the time to people, right? So if he likes your, your video on YouTube because it helped him do something, he's going to go to your website to see if there's a way that he can donate to you for helping him, right? And a guy like that, that that's probably worth a, a lot of money. He can donate more than somebody else, but it's not the amount that matters. It's the thought that matters that goes into that amount that you give to somebody. Again, starting from the jump, talking about advertisements or something like that. It just kind of is what it is. But again, people get really, really weird talking about money. You know, when I was talking to John Deloney, he was talking about being in these, uh, you know, scenarios with people where they will tell you the most depraved things they think sexually, but they won't talk to you about how much debt they're in. That's the thing is people would rather talk about their sex lives in public than talk about money. But we're going to talk about that. Again, guys, if we don't have advertisements and especially if we don't have donors, what we do here doesn't continue, right? Like, that's just the way of it. People get paid to do their job, whether they're a pastor, a plumber, or, you know, they build cars or do whatever. They get paid to do what they do. So enough complaining about the advertisements, but please give us the, our five-star reviews to counteract some of those people that are mad and giving us one-star reviews. All right, let's move off that one. Let's go to the next one here. What are your thoughts on female pastors marrying couples? Uh, okay. So part of the thing is whenever you have questions you haven't seen in a while, uh, obviously I would have some more scriptural references that would be, uh, that I would be able to exegete for you and kind of bring it to you. But in general, I, I obviously don't uh, think that female pastors should be marrying couples because I don't think female pastors should be a thing. And when I say the term pastor, I mean uh, pastor as described in, in kind of the biblical context. There are a lot of churches now, especially kind of mega churches, non-denominational churches, they just call everyone pastor, Right. And I'm being a little bit hyperbolic, but everybody has the title pastor. So they're the worship pastor. They're the missions pastor. They're the small groups pastor. They're the this pastor, that pastor. And so some of those people can kind of be mixed roles, but they're just kind of adding pastor to the end. I don't know if because it sounds better or it kind of substantiates these people a little bit more. And so if one of those people was marrying a couple, like, I guess I get it to, to a certain degree. But again, if we take marriage seriously and we believe that marriage is between one man and one woman, we can assume that we also take the other parts of the Bible seriously, where it talks about men being in the pastoral role caring for the flock. So I guess my overall thoughts is I don't think that it would be appropriate to do that. Um, 
I know that there are people who, you know, have some special scenarios. So maybe it's a Christian couple, but, you know, the father was the pastor and was going to do the wedding and he passed away. And so, you know, grandma steps in or mom steps in or something like that. And those are some different areas that you can get into. It's not a salvation issue for most of these people, but it's just an issue of how we're going to be applying the scriptures. Uh, and also, I think there's a good book here. Um, I'm trying to remember the exact title. So it's it's John Piper and a bunch of other people. It's called... Um, it's Recovering Biblical Manhood and Womanhood, I believe is is the title. It's on our 100 books every modern Christian man should read list. So if you're wondering about that book list, go to undaunted.life backslash book list. Undaunted.life backslash book list, and you can get access to that. But it's the John Piper one, uh, uh, Recovering Biblical Manhood and, and Womanhood or Masculinity and uh, Womanity. I don't know. Womanity is not even a word. But that book is like four or 500 pages of a breakdown of, you know, complementarianism and egalitarianism, the role of women in the church, the role of men in the church. And so if you want people that are really, really smart, that spend a bunch of time in the scripture that kind of give you their overall ideas in that area, I think that's a great resource for you. But in general, I do not think it's appropriate for women pastors to be marrying couples or women pastors in the actual pastoral role to actually be a thing. All right, let's move on to the next one here. What if I cannot be the main breadwinner for my family because of my career choice? Is that a bad or sinful thing? For example, I am a teacher and my wife is a surgical assistant. As long as we do those jobs, she will always make about double what I do. So um, I remember this question because I remember having a conversation with this guy, uh, you know, off air and, you know, kind of talking through this a little bit. I get it. Um, there is definitely a biblical mandate for the man to provide for his family. Now, some people take that even further, you know, even the book I just uh, talked about with John Piper and all those other folks, there are people that are in that book that think if a woman works outside the home at all, that she is doing something sinful. Now, I don't have that same read of scripture. I, I don't see that being the mandate for a lot of women, but let, let's kind of bring it back to this context. So, so this guy, his wife's a surgical assistant. He's a teacher. Now there is there is the the chance or the thought that both of them are exactly where God wants them to be. That where God wants this man to be working is as a teacher, maybe he's also a coach or whatever. And the best place, the most fertile ground for this woman to be in terms of spreading the gospel and spreading the good news of Jesus is to be a surgical assistant. That is certainly possible. It's also possible that it's not. And so for some of these people, they're doing the job that's most comfortable to them, not necessarily the job they're being called to do. That's a whole nother can of worms that I don't really want to get into because I don't know these people. I obviously don't know what their prayer life is like. I don't know, you know, what their interaction with God is like, but let's just assume for, for, you know, the rest of this question that these people are exactly where they're supposed to be. What they're being paid is just a number. Okay. They're both contributing to the household. So when a woman doesn't work, and I'm using major air quotes there, it, it's not the same. That it, it doesn't mean as much to people that are actually paying attention because a woman that works from home or works in the home is doing work. We're all called to work. Some of our works are called jobs where we go and make money. Some of our works are entrepreneurial ventures where we start businesses and we're paid you know, money for the services and or the, the products that we give out to people, right? And so... There's always going to be an inequity there if both mom and dad are working or, or, you know, husband and wife are working. Okay. And for the majority of the time that my wife and I've been, been together and, you know, next month, it'll be 13 years of marriage. And I think, you know, 16 years or 17 years overall of being together, there have been times where she has made more than me. 
I mean, those times weren't as much as, as me making more than her, but I've had a bunch of different jobs since I graduated from college, right? I did very, very well in college, graduated top of my class, graduated at one of the worst times possible in 2008, right into the financial crisis of 2009. So, you know, I've done everything from selling coupon books door to door to, you know, uh, making countertops and, uh, mowing lawns and, you know, doing, I've done every, all these different random jobs. So there were different times where my wife made more than me and it was no big deal. Now for me, obviously there was that extra level of like, oomph, like, Hey, I got, I really got to step my game up. And, and there have been, you know, seasons of our life where I've done some, some contract work and some different things where I've made a ton of money in a very, very short period of time, but that doesn't make me better than her. And that doesn't make my, what I bring to the household different in, in, in kind. So let's say just for, for easy numbers, let's say I made $10,000 and she only made $5,000 during this stretch of time. That doesn't mean I'm twice as important as her to the household. And now that we have children, we're not looking at it in terms of the budget. Like, well, you brought this much into the household and I brought this much into the household. So this is how much more important I am than you. This is how much more God appreciates me than you. The kids don't know. The kids don't care, right? They care if they're loved and cared for. They, they don't know exactly where the money breakdown came from to pay to have electricity, to pay to have, you know, central heat and air or food or clothing. They, they don't know where that comes from. And so I, I get where this guy's coming from. You can kind of sense that there's a, a little bit of guilt there uh, that maybe he's not really hitting the mark. And my encouragement to him would be like, man, if that's where you're called to be, do the job and don't worry about it. Because again, teachers don't make very much, especially in the state of Oklahoma. They, they don't make very much. People like to complain about that. Um, but the thing about it is, is like, you're going to get paid whether you're a crappy teacher or a good teacher. That's the thing about being a state employee is you can be terrible at your job and still have a job. Whereas if you were in the open marketplace, you probably would have been sent packing a long time ago. So focus on being the best teacher possible. And also uh, let's make sure that that's where God wants you to be. And the fact that your wife is a surgical assistant, make sure that's where God needs her to be as well. But she shouldn't quit her job and go get a job that's uh, paid more paltry than a teacher just to make you feel better. Okay, so those are my thoughts on that. Let's get into the next one here. What is it that you sneak into your mouth <laughs> during some of your podcasts? Okay, so this is a person that uh, obviously watches us on YouTube or on Rumble. So if you guys, I just did it again there without even thinking about it. So I have to clear my throat quite a bit. Uh, I don't have the strongest voice. You know, when I get to talking, especially on a podcast or when I'm speaking live or something like that, my vocal cords get really heated up. I get dry mouth. Um, you know, it's, it's hard for me to speak for a long period of time. Uh, I've seen a bunch of doctors and tried a bunch of different things to try and figure out exactly what's going on. But I basically had this gravelly voice since college. It's just kind of been a thing and it could be a reflux thing. It could be a how I breathe thing. It could be the fact that my nose has been broken before. There's so many people that have an idea, but none of them know, know really how to fix it. But what I keep right here within uh, arm's reach, which is a good reminder to go and pop it on my mouth. This is a, a throat lozenge. So I've got a cup right here. I think this is a cup from Andrews and Wilson. So shout out to you guys. And so I've got all these different throat lozenges in here. These are throat coat lozenges. And so I'll just put it in my cheek. And if you're listening to it, you probably can't know the difference or you probably don't know the difference. But if you hear me t talking, it seems like the left side of my mouth isn't moving as much, but that just releases a little bit of whatever's in this lozenge. And it kind of like, you know, uh, makes my, my throat, it relax a little bit and it's got like honey in it as well. And also for those of you watching, I have honey basically within arm's reach of me at all times. So I have it in my car. I've got it in the kitchen. I've got it here in the studio. I take a big shot of this. You know what? Just for you guys, I'm gonna take another shot. Right now. So I'll take a bunch of honey in there, let it kind of work its way down my throat, let it coat everything. It's basically just helped me be able to get through a podcast, especially podcasts like this, a Q&A podcast. These typically go about an hour. Last Thursday's episode was about an hour and a half. My throat is still kind of messed up from speaking that forcefully for that long. If any of you guys listen to this, if you're ear, nose and throat doctors and you actually know what the heck you're doing, 
and you have some suggestions for me, let me know. Because especially when I go speak live at some place, if I'm doing like a men's event or something, I absolutely leave with my throat in tatters. Because the thing is, is I'm speaking for an hour or two or more while I'm there, you know, with a microphone on my face and, you know, talking. But then beforehand, everybody wants to talk to me. Afterwards, everybody wants to talk to me. Because if you're the guest speaker, it doesn't mean that you're, you know, necessarily special. But people just, yeah, it's a new guy. Let's go talk to the new guy. So you're just talking constantly. And then driving back and forth to the venue, if you're being driven by somebody, you're conversating then. It's only whenever I can like be alone that I can really rest my voice. But I usually have throat coat tea. I'll, I'll buy local honey there so I can get some of the local, you know, pollen in there or whatever. I don't understand bees. But that's like the only time I get to rest my voice. Like I, if I'm speaking at a church, I will like sneak into some random person's office and just like sit there just to, you know, let my throat relax and my voice relax and all that. But that is why, uh, you know, sometimes in the middle of talking, I'll just kind of slip it in my mouth. So that's a very adept observation from the guy that pointed that out. So that is exactly what I'm sneaking in throat coat lozenges. No, I'm not sponsored by throat coat lozenges. Any of you guys that get butt hurt about advertisements. Let's move on to the next question. A pastor within my denomination has been, quote, relieved of his duties, unquote, for appearing in a drag television show for HBO, and my home pastor hasn't addressed the issue after it made national news. What should I say to him? How should I go about it? And how would one deal with the negative societal and personal connections to one's denomination after something like that happens? Okay, let me kind of deal with the end of that first. The negative societal personal connections with one's denomination, blah, blah, blah. Don't worry about that. Like, do you speak for your denomination? Is that your job? Are you in the PR committee for whatever your denomination is, which you didn't say, but I could take a few guesses. That's not your job. So don't worry about it. If it comes up in conversation, and I don't mean like on Facebook, like, or, or Twitter or something like that, but if it comes up in like a legitimate conversation, have that conversation with somebody, but it's not your job to defend your entire denomination. Okay. Right. You should defend Christ. You should be able to provide an apologia for your belief system, but hopefully you would not be providing an apologia for, you know, your denomination. So in terms of, you know, your pastor not really saying anything about it, how you should address it, I encourage guys to listen to the show all the time to have a dialogue with their main pastor if it's possible. Now, some of you go to these mega churches where the person that you're, is so insulated from a peon like you that you're never even going to shake the hand of your pastor, right? Now, I talked about recently, uh, you know, I went to Life Church for like 12 or 13 years, and like in that entire period of time, I shook Craig Rochelle's hand one time. He doesn't know my name. He doesn't know anything about my family, and even some of his underlings, they don't know anything about this. That is, you know, Skittles Church. You go there, you get your Skittles, and, and you leave, and then you come back next week because you, you got to get some more, you know, basically TED talking, right? But if your pastor's not talking about these issues and you think the issue is an important thing, you should go to this person and talk to them. Now, one thing that you have to realize is if you don't have a relationship with your pastor, like a first name basis relationship with your pastor, then you should not expect them to make any changes based on your feedback. So I'm reminded of a story from college. So um, I had this this class. It was like the hardest class in my undergraduate uh, degree. And everybody knew it was the hardest class. And there were only three grades in the class. There was, um, you know, a paper and there was a midterm and a final. That was it. So you had three things. And if you screwed up one of those things, you basically screwed the pooch. And so I think I've talked about this before. So I got uh, on the midterm, I got like a 70, right? And, and I'm a really good student. I'm a straight A student. I get a 70 on the midterm and I studied my butt off. It just didn't work out. Like I just, I just circled the wrong bubbles, right? And it just, it didn't work out. And so mathematically at that point, I knew I can't get an A. Like there's no way with this, this with these few things. 
Now, I, I pretty much aced the paper because I spent a ton of time on it. I submitted it to the professor two weeks before it was due and said, would you mind making some corrections or give me the ability to make some corrections based on your notes? He said, absolutely, because that was the only paper he had sitting on his desk. And so I basically aced the paper. But again, mathematically, I did not have a way to where I could, you know, get enough of a good grade on the final to get an A in the class. So I go to this professor's, uh, I don't know if he'd want me to mention him on air, so I'll just leave it there. So I go to his office uh, the week before the final and I said, hey, I understand the the class is what it is. I understand the grades are what they are. You made the syllabus, you make the class. It is what it is. Is there anything that you can do for me? Because, you know, I'm a straight A student. I'd like to maintain that. You know, this is one of the, you know, big, you know, cornerstones of this degree program is this class. I'd like to get an A in the class. I'd like to earn an A in the class. What can you do for me? And so he considered it for a second. And then finally he says, Kyle, if you can get an A on my final, on my final, which is going to be harder than the midterm. If you can get an A on my final, I'll give you A in the class, regardless of what the points say. And I said, deal. Like, there's not a better thing he could have done for me other than just straight up charity. Yeah, I like you. So here's an A. So I was able to work really hard. I got an A on the final thing. I got a 95 on the final, got an A in the class, moved on. Great. But the reason why that worked was a couple of things. Number one, I didn't miss a single class that entire semester. I think it was a Monday, Wednesday, Friday class. I didn't miss a single class except for when I was flying out of the country on a Friday. It was the Friday before spring break. And I told him about it beforehand. I sat in the front in every single class. I was always engaged in the discussion. I would ask questions. I, w- I wouldn't suck up, but I was engaged in what he was trying to teach us and what he was trying to get across to us. And he knew my name. Because if you're a college professor and you've got 20, 30, 50, 100, 150 students in your class, not everyone's going to make a connection with you. There's going to be very, very few students that you're going to remember while they're in your class for that semester because, you know, uh, this was the only time I was going to have this professor in this degree program, right? The, only, the one time I was going to have this guy. But he knew my name. And so when I went into his office, it was, hey, Kyle, not, hey, how you doing? And so there were probably people that would have begged him for an A or a B or a C in his class or whatever, and he would have, I don't know who you are. So that was a long way to get back to the story about a pastor is if your pastor doesn't know who you are, they're probably not going to take what you're saying too terribly seriously. So you should have a relationship with your pastor in some way, shape or form to where they take what you, what you say with, with some extra weight and gravity, right? So if you don't have, to the person that asked this question, if you don't have the relationship with your pastor, you should probably establish that first before you go in there and say, why haven't you talked about this? Cause that, that's going to be a really, really bad way of getting across what you want to get across. But assuming you do have a relationship with your pastor, the way you should go about talking to him about it is to go and ask him questions. When I meet people for the first time, I have this kind of thing in my head where I try to ask them six questions about them before I let them ask uh, questions about me and that kind of a thing. It doesn't always work out that way, but show interest in somebody else. So go to him and say, hey, you know, this, this person that was in our denomination, they were obviously famously on this HBO uh, show or documentary or whatever, and they were uh, fired from their job and all those different things. Uh, I'm surprised that you haven't talked about it from the pulpit. Is there a particular reason why? Because for all you know, that's his brother. And, you know, it's a shame to the family and he's still processing the emotions and, and he doesn't really want to go work through that. Or maybe that's a mentor of his or something like that. So you don't want to be needlessly offensive to him if that's somebody that's very, very close to them. Perhaps it was an oversight. Perhaps he didn't get the news that this person was on HBO and all those different things. Like he's completely unaware. That's not likely, but maybe he's completely unaware. So give the pastor the opportunity to tell you why he hasn't talked about it, as opposed to accusing him and saying, you don't talk about this and you don't take it seriously. And are you going woke and blah, 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 and all these different things. That's the thing that I would say. And that's the thing that I would encourage you to do is ask questions and then just go from there. So depending upon his answer, it's going to change how you would respond, but you should crescendo and end with, Hey, No matter what happens, I got your back. 
I tell you guys this all the time when you encourage a pastor to talk about hard issues, woke issues, you know, abortion issues, those types of things. Tell the pastor, hey, slings and arrows are going to come your way if you talk about this from the pulpit, but I've got your back. And then make sure you talk to some other boys of yours that go to that church as well and send them to talk to the pastor as well and say, Pastor, if you talk about this, I got your back. If you talk about that pastor that's kicked out for dressing in drag and you know all those different things, I got your back. I think that'll be a good way to handle it. All right, guys, next one here. I want to work out hard, but I'm injured. What should I do? Uh, so here, this, this one's actually pretty easy. Uh, depending on the injury, like if you, you broke your spine or something like that, probably it's going to limit your options as to what you're able to do. Uh, maybe you can work out your eyelids or something like that. But I've had a lot of injuries in my life, even before I did jujitsu, right? That's just when you have an active life and as you age, you're going to get injured unless you golf because you basically can't get injured playing golf unless you drive drunk like Tiger Woods. Um, but he wasn't even playing golf at the time. That was just me taking a shot at Tiger Woods. But the thing about it is, is injuries happen all the time. Bumps and bruises happen all the time. If you power lift, if you do jujitsu, if you do, uh, you know, hard sport, any of those types of things, it's so easy to get injured. I know people that have snapped their Achilles playing spike ball, right? Like it just happens with age. That's kind of like the old man injury. It's either the Achilles or the hamstring, right? Do what you can do. Because I always say this, especially when I train my, my guys on Sunday nights, if we're going to work out, we might as well work out hard. The, the only times I get massively frustrated on Sunday nights during the workouts when guys are obviously dogging it. And I'm not very quiet about that. I will call them out by name and say, you're dogging it. Get your head in the game. Let's go. Like go to that dark place in your brain. Like one of the, the first episodes I did or in the first dozen episodes of this podcast was called go there. And it was called, it was about going to that dark, crazy place in your brain where your brain's telling your body, you're not tired yet. You got this. You can do it. Just keep pushing. Don't stop whatever you do. If you stop, you die. Like that's go to that place in your brain. And so if you're injured, just do what you can. So I think I told you guys about whenever I had a thumb surgery because I was doing jujitsu and this thumb got uh, obliterated, all the tendons or ligaments or whatever in the thumb got absolutely obliterated. So I had a cast on. And I think I've talked about this before on the show. And so with a cast on, the first two weeks, you know, after surgery, they're like, hey, you can't do anything. You can't even sweat because of the chance of, you know, infection, all those different things. And so what I did was, is I stretched because that was all I was able to do. And I stretched in a room where I had a fan on me and the air conditioner going so that I wouldn't accidentally break a sweat, right? Because I couldn't even walk the dogs because it was like summertime. You're going to sweat immediately in Oklahoma. Like, so that wasn't really working out. So I did a bunch of stretching, a bunch of stretching, right? And so, cause that was all I could do. And then I was, when I was uh, allowed to start, you know, even still with the castle, when I was allowed to start working out, I did everything I possibly could. I bought straps so that I could strap these straps to my cast so I could use them as a, like, as a pulling mechanism so I could work on my back and work on my biceps and, you know, push down to work on triceps and work on shoulders just to do whatever I could. Because you know what was not available to me? Can't do pull-ups. Right. So some of you crazy men out there can do one handed pull ups. I can do a few, but I've got to grab on with the other hand. Right. I couldn't do deadlift because I couldn't grab the barbell. Couldn't do squat because I couldn't put the barbell. I couldn't really rest it on my back and balance it with any type of success. I couldn't bench. I couldn't do overhead press. I couldn't do any of the things I was normally able to do. I couldn't do a push up. But I did something. I ran a ton of sprints during that time period because my lower half was working just fine. Right. I was able to run. I was like, man, I really hope I don't like blow a hammy doing one of these things, but do what you can. Like so many people look at, you know, during COVID, their gym being shut down or uh, if they're injured or something like that, that's their excuse. Just sit on their butt and eat ice cream and watch television. No, do what you can. If you're going to work out, you might as well work out hard. Do what your body is capable of doing, right? Push yourself to the limit. All right, let's get into the next one here. 
If you could set up any person on an interview show, who would it be? Wait, let me, I think I read that wrong. If you could set up any person on an interview show, who would it be? Uh, and which show would it be on? Okay. Sorry. I think there were some typos in there. So if I could set up an interview somewhere, uh, what would it be and what show would it be on? Um, Okay, so there's some good options out there. So obviously, you know, people would obviously think of the long form thing like a Joe Rogan experience or Jordan Peterson show or something like that. There's, you know, debate shows like with Justin Brierley over in the UK. Um, I guess if I could set up an interview. Okay, because of the size of the show, let's just go ahead and say Joe Rogan. Let's say the Joe Rogan experience. And I would want like... You know, back in the day, I really wanted Robbie Zacharias to somehow find his way on that show, just kind of engage with a lot of Joe Rogan's really dumb ideas about how we got the Bible and all those different things. Um, you know, obviously that wouldn't have worked out really well. Um, so maybe like a uh, Frank Turek, uh, an apologist like that, a Greg Kokel. Um, um, gosh, I'm trying to think of other evangelists or apologists or something like that. Even someone like a Jeff Durbin uh, would be good, but, you know, some of his... Uh, positions may not be as palatable to, to that audience. Um, oh, there's one that is coming to mind. William Lane Craig would maybe be another one. I know some of you guys have some issues uh, with him and kind of the way he does things. Uh, maybe a Vody Bauckham. Um, again, some of these pastors maybe aren't as good at apologetics or they're more better at exegeting the scripture. But if someone like Joe Rogan doesn't even take the scripture seriously, that could be an issue. So th that's not really a, a very good way of, of answering your question, but I, you, you guys always want me to be precise and I always encourage you to be precise. So it'd be Joe Rogan experience. Let's just go ahead and say Joe Rogan and William Lane Craig. And the reason why I say William Lane Craig is because a guy like Joe Rogan has to get to the point where he can take the Bible seriously and where he can take the idea of God seriously. Because then once you get there, you can get into the resurrection, you can get into the historicity of the gospel accounts uh, and the rest of the New Testament and all that. And so I feel like William Lane Craig can talk to Joe Rogan about anything that he would want to talk about. So if Joe Rogan brings up, what about evolution? Like he's ready for that. Well, what about, you know, the, the way we got the Bible and it doesn't even match the original transcripts. We don't even have the original transcripts. He would know how to engage with that. Um, but that would probably be what I would set up. All right, next question here. Should UFC fighters be paid more? Um, okay, so so there's been a lot that's kind of come out over the last couple of years about how much UFC fighters uh, UFC fighters are paid, and you have guys like Jake Paul coming out saying, "Oh, you know, you've got these crazy restrictive contracts, and you'll make more money if you just come over here and box me and blah blah and all that stuff." And it's kind of put a lot of attention on you know those types of things. So I talked about this a little bit last week when I was talking about Major League Baseball players and the new Major League Baseball Players Association complaining about the the new deal and, you know, oh, you know, we weren't going to get enough money and blah, blah, and all these players that are making guaranteed contracts and all that. The thing that this all goes back to is those Major League Baseball players that are bellyaching, they don't have to be Major League Baseball players. No one is forcing them to work. They don't have to be a baseball player. They can drive, you know, a UPS truck which is great, honest work. They can drive a garbage truck, which is great, honest work. But they're really, really good at baseball. And someone said, hey, you're so good at baseball, we want to give you all this money. The same thing goes for teachers. I brought up teachers again. I have all these teachers complaining about how much they make. It's like, well, go get a different job. Well, I want to be a teacher. Okay, then shut up. Like, I don't understand. Same thing with UFC fighters. I wish I would be paid more. Well, did anybody force you to, to sign the contract with the UFC? Well, no, I, I wanted to be a UFC fighter. Okay, then shut up. The contract that you signed is the contract that you have. Well, I'm, I'm a bigger fighter now. And, you know, I've had some good fights. Great. Hopefully you got some bonuses. Yeah, this came up again with uh, Patty Pimblett. He's a, I think, 
135 or 145. I think it's 145. The big guy from Liverpool, you know, there was this fight over in the UK and, you know, he had this big victory and, you know, it was kind of the thing. Everybody was focusing on him. It felt like an enormous fight and all that. Then it came to light. I think he made 10 and 10. So basically what that means is you got $10,000 to show, $10,000 to win. So if you lose the fight, you make $10,000. As, as long as you make weight and enter into the octagon, you're going to make $10,000. People are like, oh my gosh, that's terrible. Like, how could he only make so much? Well, let's say that guy fought four times that year for the UFC and lost every fight. He made $40,000 that year. Like, that's not life-changing money, but you can live off that. Like, and again, like, that, that's the worst case scenario for this guy if he keeps getting fights. But he won his fight. So he got a 100% raise because he won the fight, right? Doubled his money. And then he got a bonus on top of that, which was more than all that money. So I guess I don't understand the issue. Now, I know fighters personally that used to fight in the UFC that moved on to, to other uh, fighting organizations and have made way more money working or fighting in these other organizations, but they built their name off of the number one MMA franchise in the world, the UFC. No one's close. One championship's not close. Bellator's not close. There is not another organization that is close to the UFC in terms of how seriously people take it. Like when you have these people that have MMA podcasts, they might mention a fight happening on Bellator or one or something like that. But 85% of the show, 90% of the show is talking about the UFC because that is the main, the main thing. Like imagine having a football podcast and spending a bunch of time talking about the USFL or the XFL, which isn't even a thing anymore. No, you're going to talk about the NFL if you're talking about professional football, right? You're not going to be talking about an independent league or any of those types of things. You're going to focus on the upper echelon and that is the UFC. That's not to say that there's not great fighters other places, but to kind of get back to the whole thing, you signed a contract. It is a contract that says you're going to get this many fights with the UFC and this is how much you're going to be paid for those fights. Now, some guys get to renegotiate. Some guys uh, can kind of open that back up and it makes sense for them. But again, no one's forcing you to fight. And guess what? If you're a really, really good fighter, even a champion, and no one cares to watch your fights, you shouldn't be paid more. I've talked about before, I have a buddy that just doesn't understand, you know, when Mighty Mouse was having his run in the UFC, why isn't he making as much as Connor? And I kept trying to explain it to him. It's like, bro, it's because nobody cares to watch him fight. This is prize fighting. If nobody puts eyeballs on your fight, if they're not stopping what they're doing to pay now 75 bucks to get the new uh, UFC for that day to watch you fight, then you shouldn't get paid more. Last week, I talked about the women's soccer team for the USA women's soccer team. They make, they produce a fraction of the revenue for USA soccer than the men do. And yet they want to be paid the same because math, because equality, because diversity, equity, and inclusion, because of, because of what exactly? So again, if you sign a contract to be a UFC fighter and you're pissed off about your pay, you should only be looking at yourself. That's your fault. All right, next question here. What is your EDC? So what is your everyday carry? So uh, I think I've answered this on the, on the show before, but it would have been a long time ago. So typically on my way out the door, uh, the firearm that I use, I have an appendix carry holster that I use. Uh, I have a SIG P365. That's a fantastic uh, weapon. That's, I think that's the best-selling gun for the last two or three years running. Um, the, as a firearm, it is absolutely fantastic because of the amount of... Uh, the amount of rounds that you can have on you, but still have a compact gun that's kind of easy to carry appendix. Because I know a lot of guys that carry full-size appendix, but that's not really uh, best for a lot of people. Some people have a gut, and so they can't really go appendix because, you know, it's really uncomfortable in their stomachs and all that. So that is a firearm that I typically have, and I have some other guns in other places that I can carry with me. Um, 
I usually have a Benchmade knife uh, folder in my pocket. I should probably get a fixed blade at some point, but I haven't made the, the move to get a fixed blade to keep on me as well. Uh, and then, I mean, just from there, like I've got a med kit in my truck. And so if something were, were to go wrong in my truck, I got to add some things to it. But, you know, I could, you know, pull that med kit out and, and respond uh, in a decent way until the actual medics and the actual professionals uh, get there on that day. Um, I know guys that carry med kits on their ankle and they've got a tourniquet in their back pocket and, you know, an extra magazine and all that. I don't really do any of that. Like, uh, it's maybe something I should do. Maybe you can make the argument. Uh, I wear G-Shock watches all the time. Like, I, I don't know. So uh, hopefully that answers the question that you had as in terms of my everyday carry. But I would like to give a shout out to Eddie Penny over at Contingent Group and also his own podcast and Unafraid and all those different things. He just released a uh, new pin. So it's like a tactical pin. And so uh, this is something that you could carry with you. And if you go into a place that won't let you have your firearm or a knife or something like that, this is something that you could use in a uh, situation that gets kinetic where you kind of have to uh, figure your way through that. Um, uh, I guess that's the easiest way to say that, but also, uh, you know, able to break glass or do different things like that. So he's got those available on his website. If I can remember, I'll make sure to put that in the show notes. All right, next one here. Should Christians say <laughs> the the chant, let's go Brandon. So um, I just said it there. Um, so obviously you guys know the history of kind of where that came from. There were people at all these sporting events that were saying F Joe Biden, but the F was obviously the actual word, uh, kind of a crude chant. They couldn't really keep it out of the microphones on the crowd. You know, uh, these TV organizations were having a problem with it, but I believe it was a NASCAR driver. Uh, they uh, were being interviewed by this woman reporter and in the crowd, they're yelling F Joe Biden, F Joe Biden. And the announcers like, or the, the person interviewing is like, oh, the crowd's so behind you. They're saying, let's go, Brandon, which doesn't sound at all like F Joe Biden, but you know, they're, they're doing their best. I think it was NBC or ABC or something like that. And so then that caught on. That was kind of the way to say F Joe Biden without being so crude was let's go Brandon. So in terms of a Christian, cause that's how this was framed. Should Christians say, let's go Brandon. I would say probably not. Um, now I know there are a lot of Christians that use crude and foul language all the time. I've even had, uh, you know, heated discussions with some brothers of mine, uh, that use foul language all the time. And I kind of called them on it and like, why are you doing that? And they're like, well, you know, you can't really judge me. And you know, that's, you know, the way I talk and blah, blah, blah. And I'm not talking at somebody like that. So it's not like foul stuff coming out of my mouth, talking about someone else. Blah, blah. People have their own opinions about whether you should use certain language or, or other language. That's not, there's not a list of words in the Bible that you can or can't say. Um, there's not a list of circumstances where you can say mean things and not say mean things. I do know that Jesus said some things that don't sound incendiary to our modern ears, like you brood of vipers, right? But that was something back in the day that made people want to mob him and kill him, right? So imagine what you would need to say in a public setting right now, which I mean, there are mobs basically on call, uh, George Soros funded all over the planet, just ready to go. But let's say you're in a room full of reasonable people and you decided to get up and say something. What would you have to say and how foul would it have to be for the people to maybe want to put hands on you? right? Because Jesus did that often. That was just kind of like, you know, it happened every day that ended in Y back in his day, right? And so there's not a list of words. There's not a list of expressions. There's not anything like that. But let's go, Brandon. It's just a stand-in for F Joe Biden. Now, obviously, I do not count myself amongst the fans of Joe Biden. I think in addition to being uh, someone that deserves our pity because he is a dementia patient that instead of being uh, in a hospital getting treatment, he's being, you know, rolled out there in front of the world stage to constantly, you know, basically crap his pants and stumble all over his words. But this is a guy that has really done some horribly detrimental things to our country in a very short period of time. And he's very close to being potentially the worst president ever. And he's not even two years into his first term, right? Like, that that's something, you know what I mean? But 
if you were a Christian and you were in church, right, where everybody's kind of minding their P's and Q's and, you know, watching their mouth and all that, would you get up in front of your congregation and say, F Joe Biden or let's go Brandon? Probably not. If Jesus was walking right next to you in the flesh, not just in the spirit, is that something that you would scream out in public? Probably not. So is it funny? Yes, I think there have been some very unique uses of the Let's Go Brandon chant. You know, when Ron DeSantis went to Brandon, Florida to sign uh, some deal into law or some whatever bill into law back in the day, it was a funny troll. It really was a funny troll. I get it. Uh, There are a lot of things that aren't really, you know, don't really align with the scriptures that I find funny, right? There's a lot of comedy that I find funny that doesn't really align with those types of things. But if you're a Christian, probably shouldn't say it. All right, next one here. Why don't you talk about Calvinism or Armenianism? So. Here's the thing with those two things. And even recently here in the Sunday school at the church that I go to, we had one guy get up and kind of not give a defense for Armenianism, but he just kind of got up and explained it. Like if you're Armenian, this is what you believe. And then the next week, a guy got up and talked about Calvinism. Like, okay, if you're Calvinist, this is what you believe. The, the reason why I guess I don't talk about it is because I feel like there are disputes in the church I'm trying to think of the best way to say this because basically there's no way I can answer this where someone's not going to be mad or some group of people's not going to be mad. So I'll just wade into it. I think there there are a lot of people that like to argue about non-salvific things. Now, there are some very, very uh, salvific-based things in the debate between Calvinism and Armenianism. And then there's a bunch of other stuff that's not salvific that people are going to pull out their IPAs and comb their beard and say, all right, we're going to argue about this thing. The, the sense that I get is Armenians are pretty like, oh, hey, whatever, let's kind of do this. And Calvinists are like, no, it's got to be this way and we got to do it. And it's kind of the whole reformed crowd and all that. But I find that a lot of these people spend an unbelievable amount of time arguing with other Christians about stuff that is not, you know, based on uh, whether or not someone's going to end up going to heaven. And, you know, they just feel so self-righteous and, oh, we're going to answer this question in this way. And they don't really care as much about having a relationship or a discussion with somebody as opposed to just dunking on them. I, I get that sense a lot. It's mainly more from the Calvinist side that these people want to argue about everything. And they always want to constantly interject regardless. It's like, have you ever met a Calvinist? A Calvinist is almost like a vegan. It's like they always got to talk about it. And they always got to tell you about it. And everything kind of goes back. Every spiritual conversation goes back to something that John Calvin wrote or thought. Um, so there, have I made everybody mad? All right, I said Armenians basically just do whatever. And Calvinists just basically want to pound people all the time on the tops of their heads. The, the thing about it is there are some tenets of both of those belief systems that I'm still working through myself. Every time I, I find somebody that's kind of more well-versed on those areas than I am, I will ask them questions. Because again, as a, as a show host and something like that, you're kind of always expected to have a fully-fledged opinion on everything. And, and I just want to be honest on the times where I don't. There are things that I'm asked about that I'm like, yeah, I don't really know about that. Yeah, I don't really know about that news story. Can you tell me about it? And then I'll apply, you know, uh, biblical morality or some things that I've, I've experienced in my life to that situation to try to give some wisdom to it. But I've got some conversations coming up with some pastors here on the show that are going to be released a little bit later that are going to be, you know, kind of in this vein. Uh, A guy sent me a DM just a couple of days ago on Instagram. And it's like, man, don't come to me for the answer on that right now. Cause there are people that have had two, three hour long debates on, on debate shows or, you know, the formalized debates. One guy's a Calvinist, one guy's an Armenian, and then they go at it for a long time. Go and see who feels more compelling. But I will say this since I already, you know, uh, crapped on the Calvinist for a little bit. The people that spend the most time, and I'm looking off to my right because this is where my stack of Bibles and Bible study materials are right over here to my right. The people that seem to spend the most time with the scriptures, the people that seem to spend the most time 
conservatively reading the scriptures and maybe going back to the Greek or, or going back to the, uh, you know, Hebrew, like those people tend to land on the Calvinist side in my experience and in my view. Now, that's just me paying attention and reporting to you what I've seen. That may not be accurate, right? I'm not saying every single person that studies, uh, you know, this many people study the Bible this much and they end up being this versus that. Again, I can't possibly say that. Nothing's ever been done to be able to give you that definitive view. But the people that read the scriptures for what the scriptures are tend to fall on that scale. Even even the pastor of our church. So uh, the pastor of our church here in Edmond, Oklahoma, it's called Faith Bible Church. Um, and Pastor Mark Hitchcock used to teach at Dallas Theological Seminary. He may actually still teach there. You know, does a lot of stuff on end times. I think he describes himself as a four-point Calvinist. Um, and there's one point that he, you know, has, is still wrestling with. And so this is a guy that is a professional Christian. He's in his sixties. He's been a professional Christian for a very, very long time. He's been the lead pastor of this church for decades. He's still working through some of the things that he thinks on some of these areas. That doesn't make him squishy. That doesn't make him wishy-washy, but there are things in scripture that you can't debate and still be a Christian. Like, did Jesus really rise on the third day? Was he really resurrected? Is the Trinity really a thing? Those are things that you can't really question. But some of these tenets that that guys wrote, you know, hundreds of years after, I think those things are open for debate and there is a lot of gray area there. So I did my best with that question. It just kind of is what it is. We'll move on from there. Next one here. How do I find a church? So I get, I get this question a lot. How do I find a church? Hey, I live in, you know, whatever'sville, Ohio. Hey, I live in, you know, who's it's, what's it, Florida. You know, do you know of any manly churches, any man-friendly churches in my area? So I'll kind of give you my, my canned answer when I get that question. No, I don't know where you should go to church. I don't know your area. I don't know what churches are there. Uh, I don't know uh, what your leanings are. I don't know if you're really, really into music or if worship's not that big a deal to you in terms of what the music sounds like. Uh, I don't I don't know what's available to you. And people are like, hey, do you have a, a website where uh, that you guys have compiled all these churches that are, are man-friendly and all that? The thing with that is I would have to hire a full-time team to make that list and then probably a second full-time team just to maintain that list because churches can change. Pastors can die or move on. You know, pastors could have been one thing at one time in, uh, in history, and now we're two years beyond that, and, and they talk differently, speak differently, think differently. And so there would, be, there would need to be this constant updating of that database. And just so you know, guys, I have no intentions of doing that. I have no intentions of hiring two teams of people to do that. That's not something that we'll do. But this is what I do tell people. And it kind of goes, goes back to what I said earlier. If you feel really, really good when you're in church, when you're, if you're in church and you feel really, really good about yourself and, and once you leave there, you, you kind of don't really think about church anymore. That may be your hint that that's not the best church for you because the pastor is probably tickling your ears a lot, telling you about how great you are and how God just wants to reveal you to the world. And he doesn't want to change you. He just wants to reveal you. I think that bonehead Stephen Furtick said something like that here recently. Like he just wants to reveal you. Like if you feel like God is not just for you, but he's about you. Like he's about you. He's not about himself and his glory. He's about you. You probably shouldn't go to that church. That's how you feel when you leave. And I, and I said kind of a Skittles church. There's a lot of churches out there where you go in there. It's an hour long. You know, they've got, you know, they've got golf carts picking you up in the parking lot to bring you in and you get your coffee and your snack and you go in there and you listen to the rock show for, for 20 minutes. And the pastor gets up there, does his Ted talk with a few Bible verses that he sprinkled in on the, at the last minute. So he could still be called a pastor and get the tax exempt status. And then you leave, you've been there less than an hour. You didn't really have to talk to anybody. You're rolled out of there. And before you even leave the parking lot, you kind of forgot about what this person said, and it's made no real change in your life. 
probably not a church you should go to. Okay. Those churches are fine. They're seeker sensitive, seeker friendly. You know, they tend to say they're evangelical, but is it creating life change in these people? Like true and substantive life change? Kind of hard, kind of hard to know that. I would encourage all of you to go to a church that has expository preaching, to have sad pastors that are all go ahead and grab mine. They, they've got their Bible in their hand and they've got it open in front of them or on their iPad. That's fine. And they're reading the Bible to you. And they're explaining what this says. I just opened this up to Isaiah 54 too. If you have a pastor that's going to spend two weeks on one verse, trying to explain to you the context of that verse, you know, the, the historicity of that verse, who it was meant to, because the thing is, you could read a verse and not read a passage and completely miss the, the meaning of the verse because the passage gives you a hint as to what that verse actually means. The book gives you a hint. The chapter gives you a hint as to what that individual passage means. So if you see a scripture on a, on a coffee mug or on a bumper sticker or a t-shirt, like that's fine. But who is that supposed to be said to? Who is that meant for? Was that meant for you or was that meant for a particular person or a particular people group at a particular time? So if you're not going to a church that is really getting into that, that is encouraging exegesis and not eisegesis. Eisegesis is reading into the text what you want to be there, right? So that's building your TED Talk out and then just throwing scripture in, like uh, you're, you're eisegeting. But if you're exegeting a scripture, you're like, what is the scripture trying to tell us? And let me help explain that to people. That's what I would do. So if the music sucks, but the preaching's good, fine, deal with it, right? But there's plenty of people that go to a church that have a great band and all the musicians are really, really tight and it sounds good, but the, the preaching is just horrific. There's no discipleship. That's another thing with a lot of these big churches. There's no such thing as discipleship. So they want to get you, quote unquote, saved. They want you to raise your hand so they can count you, you know, you know put it into their year-end report how many people that they, quote unquote, saved. But then there's no discipleship. Like, they're like, oh yeah, here's a packet and move on with your life. Is that it? Is that it? I just have to kind of figure it out on my own now? You're not, you're not helping that person, uh, you know, get deeper uh, with the scriptures or, or to learn more about what it is they're supposed to be doing as a Christian. I find it to be a little bit hollow. And so try to find a church where there's expository preaching and then work everything out from there. All right, next question here. I'm roughly one and a half years into my uh, jujitsu training. Congratulations. I am a Christian and am married. What is your stance on training with the ladies? Okay, so I, I don't know that I've I talked about this on the show before. So obviously there are a lot of gyms where women train jujitsu, and that is great. Uh, there's young girls that train jujitsu. It gives them some confidence. Um, I think of all the sports out there, a lot of people have talked about this, of all the sports out there, of all the martial arts out there outside of actual weapons training, uh, that's probably the most valuable training that a woman can have, uh, this idea that, a, you know, a woman's going to all of a sudden be a Western boxer and punch a 200 pound guy in his chin and knock him out or kick him in his kneecap and destroy his knee. Like, uh, sorry, that, that's just not really realistic in a lot of scenarios, but jujitsu is going to give you some opportunities to maybe control somebody to move them away. You not, you probably shouldn't do a flying triangle in the street. Cause you're probably going to get spiked on your head. A la, you know, rampage Jackson, probably not the best thing that you should do, but there are a lot of women that train in the class. Now in general, I would say that for most people, if you want to drill with a girl or even roll with a girl or a woman, a girl's probably inappropriate, but for an adult woman and you're adult male, um, that's probably okay for you. But if you find yourself in any of those positions and you, it's not your mind that's as stimulated as other parts of your body, you should probably not do that anymore. That's, that's not the scenario that should work for you, right? It's not good for you and it's certainly not good for the lady. I know that there's a lot of ladies that, um, 
their training regiment uh, really requires them to train with other men, but it, it can be really, really uncomfortable because especially when you're training with a woman as well, like if you're not a complete jerk, you're not going as hard, right? Like you're not doing the things that you would normally do to a similarly sized man and for good reason, because there's something in you that says, I shouldn't be doing this to a female, right? It's the same argument I make for people when I say that if our boys wrestle, that they're not going to be allowed to wrestle against girls because I'm not going to spend all this time and attention telling them about how valuable women are and how they are the weaker vessel, which require our protection and how we should be a sheepdog and always kind of be attuned to the idea that we may have to defend a woman with, with our physicality and things like that. And then say, oh yeah, go out there and wrestle that girl and try to pin her shoulders on the ground against her will. I, I, to a kid, I don't see how they can delineate the two away. It just doesn't make sense to me. A lot of you guys disagree with me and that's fine. But you know, I, I know some Olympic level coaches that agree with me and I know some Olympic level uh, coaches that don't, you know, it just kind of is what it is. But I would say for me individually is I do not train with women. Okay. Uh, you know, my wife and I uh, discussed that early on. It's not something that she's really comfortable with and I totally get it. And I agree with it. And so for me, the, the few times I'm able to actually train jujitsu, I want the hardest roles possible as many times as possible in the limited amount of training that I get in. Because there are weeks where I might get three or four roles that entire week. And if I'm rolling against a lady or a gal, I'm just not going to give it my full effort. Right? Whereas if I'm rolling with anybody else, even if they're a white belt, I'm going to give full effort. I'm not going to bully them depending upon their, their, the amount of time they've been training, but I'm going to go hard. I'm going to go as hard as possible. Um, now there have been opportunities and there have been times where drills have taken place where, you know, you're switching partners constantly and, you know, you're doing a drill or something like that. And every now and then you kind of get stuck in a scenario to where it's like, okay, there's no way uh, to really get out of this, but I just will we'll keep the person at distance, wait for the timer to go off and then kind of move on. But again, if I can help it, and if it's within my wheelhouse, I personally do not train with ladies. I can't necessarily tell you what you should do, though. Uh, if, if you think that it's something that you're okay with, and if your significant other is okay with it, maybe that's fine for you. But for other people, it's not really within your wheelhouse. Uh, you, you know, you think the same way I do. You know, I would just kind of go that way. All right, next question here. Would you ever consider running for political office? <laughs> no, <laughs> no. There is not a scenario where I would run for political office. I've been asked about this before. I've been reached out to uh, by people in the political sphere to kind of like, you know, test the waters and all that. Absolutely not. No chance. Part of it is because I say what I say and I mean what I say and it just kind of is what it is. Um, the level of narcissism that you have to have to be an elected official is fairly substantial. Um, I believe most people that get into office are really, really concerned about increasing their personal wealth or their personal profile, not necessarily about helping the community that they're in. I know I'm painting with an incredibly large and broad brush here, but that's just kind of my perception of it. These people seem to be very, very self-serving, not just on the national scale, but even locally. Look at in COVID. Yeah, these people that were elected in a local election by, you know, a dozen votes. And here they are telling you whether or not your business can be open, whether or not your kids can go to school. And if they go to school, whether or not they should be required to wear a mask. Sorry, these people are really high on their own farts. And that's kind of what the, these people want to do. The other part of it is, is I don't want that level of attention on me and my family. Like I already have this show. I already have this platform. There's already people, you know, there's, there's relationships that we've lost because people are like, I can't believe your husband doesn't think we should kill babies in the womb. He's such a horrible person. That's fine. But when you're running for political office, there's even more of that. And to a degree, like I'm obviously not a private person. I'm a public figure. I've got the show. My wife's not a private person. She runs several businesses and, and you know, she's no, well known in this community, especially the Oklahoma City photography community and things like that, the wedding community. And so we're not incredibly private people, but the things that are private about us, we want to keep private. 
Like we don't have any skeletons in the closet. We haven't killed anybody. There's not any like crazy things. We're not evading the, the tax, uh, tax system. And like, we're not doing any crazy stuff like that, but you will have people that will dig into your life and try to ruin you. And they'll take something out of context just to screw you over. And I'm already getting some of that just by having a show, just by giving my opinion for hours and hours of time over years and years. That's just kind of how it goes. But running for office, that's just not really in my wheelhouse. Again, down the road, maybe I'll eat my words, but I just don't see a scenario where that makes sense for me or the Thompson family. All right, just a few more here. Let's go to the next one. How can I get in shape like you? Um, okay, that sounds like a douchey question. It sounds like I'm the one that put that in there, but I will tell you guys, I do get that question because for my age and for my athletic ability, I do get asked that somewhat often. And it's not, it's not people like fawning and slobbering over me. They're just like, you know, it's just kind of like, Hey Kyle, you're in really good shape. How do I do that? It'd be the same as if somebody you knew was really, really good at real estate. You would ask them like, Hey man, I'm thinking about getting into real estate. You know, how can I be successful like you? You know, somebody that has done really, really good things with their money. Maybe they didn't have the highest paying job and yet they, they're really, really well off financially. It'd be super appropriate if you went to that person and said, hey man, you know, I really want to handle my money like you've handled your money or hey, you're a really good husband and you see your kids seem to love you. I kind of want to be a dad like you. So it's kind of one of those things. It's a discipleship thing, right? So for anyone that's like, hey, what a douchey question. How can I get in shape like you? The, the reality is though, is when I tell people, when I have people that ask me that, um, my response to them is you can't. And uh, I mean, it takes them completely off guard. It catches them completely off guard. I say, you can't be in shape like me because I know what they're actually asking. I know what they're actually asking. They're not asking like, hey, how can I get in shape like you? I want to be in the exact same level of shape. I want to have the same VO2 max, the same max one rep, uh, one rep maxes on everything. That's not what they're asking. They're asking you to give them a 60-day, maybe a 90-day plan to get to what you've done, to accomplish what you've been able to accomplish physically. And that's just not in the cards for someone like you. And I mean that colloquially or, or, or group in a group way. It's just not available to you. And the reason is, is because I have worked out consistently since I was like 14 or 15 years old. I've said before, the first thing I did after I got my job and my car when I was 16 is I drove to Gold's Gym in Lawton, Oklahoma, and I got a membership. And I couldn't really afford it, but I talked to the manager. And I'm like, this is what I can do. I'm a buster right now. You know, just anything would help. And I think he helped me get like a $10 a month membership or something like that. And I spent a ton of time at Gold's Gym, right? And I've learned more over the years and I've got a home gym now. And I've had that for about five years. And I just added an Airdyne bike so I can torture myself even further. Every year I do the Murph, you know, I'm going to be doing Chad 1000X. That's a thousand, you know, weighted box step ups later this year. I, I do a lot of things, you know, when I do jujitsu, I'm trying to go as hard as possible for the entire round, uh, you know, so I can have just explosive cardio when I need it. You know, I run sprints, I, I do all these different things, but I've been doing it for years. Because if you did one week's worth of the stuff that I do physically, it might hurt you. It might break you. And again, I'm not like, oh, I'm some kind of major Adonis. Like I know people that I see on a daily basis that are better at me than just about everything I could ever try and do physically. Right. But I'm trying to maximize. I'm trying to absolutely maximize. I'm trying to squeeze out every ounce of potential in the body that God has blessed me with. I'm trying to take care of it. I'm trying to strengthen it so that if God needs me for something, which is kind of stupid to say that God needs me, but if God has called me to something later on in life, that requires me to have a, you know, able body in order to accomplish his purposes. I don't want to say, yeah, I'll do that, God, but I need some training time first. Oh, I need, I need some recovery. Oh, I'm going to need to get in the ice bath or the sauna. Nope. I want to be ready to go right now if I'm called to do it. So the thing for you 
I think the easiest thing, and it's it's hard to do now just because of, you know, TikTok and Instagram and Facebook and all that. You see these people that are just built different. They have different genetics. They have a different workout regimen. They're, they're, they have better training. They have better diet. They have, they have more capability than you. And it's just, it is what it is. And you watch the workouts they're doing or the weight they're putting up or how fast they're running. And you're like, I can never be like that person. Don't worry about it. You follow Cam Haynes on Instagram. And you're like, I'm never going to be able to run, you know, a marathon a day, every day for weeks and weeks. I'm never going to be able to do an ultra marathon. You might be right, but don't worry about that maximize your body for what you think God's purpose is for your body and also the things that you're into. So one of the reasons why I don't run distance is because my body is not really built to, uh, to run a lot of long distance. You know, in the TMI category, I have really, really long feet. So I'm only 5'10", but I have size 12 foot, but my foot is really long and skinny. I have super long toes. They're like the size of my fingers, right? Really, really long toes. I have small Achilles tendons. And so the constant pounding of my upper body on that side, on, on my feet like that is not good for my feet and Achilles and ankles. It's, it's just horrible for it. Whereas other people are built with different genetics that they can run all day and it's not going to cause any major, major issues for them. And also I want to be in really, really good shape, mainly for jujitsu. The reason why I'm not doing crazy powerlifting or trying to get these insane numbers is because adding 20 pounds or 25 pounds to my deadlift is not going to make me shoot a better double leg, right? You know, being able to do, you know, a set of 25 push-ups as opposed, or <laughs> push-ups, 25 pull-ups as opposed to like 23 pull-ups or something like that, that's not going to help me finish a choke. You know you know what I mean? Like, I want to be in as as strong as I can be to serve me in jiu-jitsu. The, the cardio that I do is more explosive because I need more explosive movements in something like jiu-jitsu. Because in a roll, there are positions that you can get in where you can take a break. But then when you're in a scramble or you're going for a submission or something like that, you you got to have that cardio in that exact moment to hold the position that you need to be able to hold. And so that's what I would encourage you guys to do. If you have something that you like to do, try to get the most out of your body and, and try to honor God and how you're taking care of the one body that he gave you. So how can I get in shape like you? You can't, but you can get in shape like you. Like you. Maximize your body. All right, guys, next question here. Have you listened to the rise and fall of Mars Hill? My goodness, the number of people that have asked me about the rise and fall of Mars Hill when I did that debate show over in the UK on uh, Unbelievable Justin Brierley, that was brought up. Mark Driscoll was brought up, all the different things. Here's the thing. No, I have not listened to the rise and fall of Mark Hill, uh, Mars Hill, and no, I do not intend to do that, partially because I don't have the time to do that. That's like 20 hours. Like, I think it's like 20 episodes are all almost an hour long. That's a lot of time and attention to give to one singular podcast. And here's the other deal. I've talked to people that have listened to it and they all pretty much say the same thing. They're, they're all, you know, people that kind of tend to think like me, maybe not quite as extreme, but they're like, yeah, Mark Driscoll seemed like a douche back in the day when he ran Mars Hill. God, he seemed like a mean bully type of guy. But some of the stuff he said, I, I kind of agreed with. That's what everybody has said. It's something like that. God, he was such a jerk, but I agree with some of the stuff that he said. So it's like the tone police didn't really like how Mark Driscoll said some things, but behind closed doors, apparently he did act like a uh, unrighteous jerk or a self-righteous jerk, I should say, right? And I would never co-sign that behavior. I would never say that that's a good thing. That guy should, you know, aspire to bully people and make people completely fearful of you. I don't think that's a really good way of doing things, but I don't need, I think it's Christianity today that, that made that whole podcast. 
they they've got it out for for strong men. I mean, I remember when they went after Trump and, you know, you know, there's probably reasons for going after Trump if you're a Christian publication, but it's not the publication that they used to be. And I think they're taking this as an opportunity to dunk on somebody that focused on manhood, that really, really wanted manhood to be at the center point of the ministry that they were doing. The bad, the bad thing is, it's just like I talked about last week, like you shouldn't be surprised if any pastor that you support does or thinks or, or acts in, you know, heinous ways. That's what he was behind closed doors. But like, I don't need to listen to 20 hours worth of examples of him cussing at people or demeaning people or, or doing things that are abiblical or, or things that, you know, wouldn't make sense or things that he wouldn't even do today. So I don't have that amount of interest in it. Again, I get typecast as the Mark Driscoll guy or the, you know, the, the angry, you know, male conservative, you know, cisgender guy. Like I get typecast as that, as that as already. And so like, doing 20 hours of behind the scenes research that is tinged in a way specifically to make him potentially look worse than he actually is or was. I'm not really into it. Kind of the same thing. Uh, the Hillsong documentary that just came out. Uh, I've been asked about that as well. It's kind of in the same vein as this. Would I like to watch that? Yeah, probably. But it's just like, it's not going to be that shocking. What are they going to tell me that's going to shock me? Oh, the, the lead pastor hid, you know, someone's sexual sin inside their church. Oh, wow. Shock of all shocks. That's like the latest one, right? That, that's not unique. You know, uh, oh, uh, the they put people in the crowd because I know they do this at Stephen Furtick's church. They actually have people on staff in the crowd that will help the spirit move, right? They'll they'll make sure to lift up their hands and they'll make sure to encourage people and, and all this type of thing, so that in case the spirit's not moving on its own, that they can kind of like co you know kind of coax it along or something like that. Like I don't care that much, right? So if the rise and fall of Mars Hill was an hour long podcast, I would have listened to it. Uh, probably twice by now, but 20 hours, eh, not really into it. All right, guys, last question of the day. Appreciate all the questions again, just uh, in case you guys are not aware. The way that you could potentially get your question read on air is to shoot me a DM on any of our social medias, especially Instagram. I get to those the quickest. And also uh, just shoot me an email to info at undaunted.life. Last question of the day. This is an easy one. It says, what is your favorite holiday? So I love a lot of holidays. So I, I love Christmas. I love Easter. Uh, I love Thanksgiving just because I'm, you know, I love eating food. I love being around, you know, family, especially when they're all making their favorite dish. Um, you know, I make a uh, a holiday out of the, out of opening day for Major League Baseball. And that's probably something I'm going to do with my sons is on opening day. If they're in school, I'll probably get them out at noon and we'll go grab some food or go home and make some hot dogs and watch baseball. Like I'm going to make a thing around that. Um, but I, I really, if I were to say, you know, and I like Veterans Day and Memorial Day because I do the Murph, like all that stuff's great. I probably like the 4th of July. I mean, Christmas is kind of the easy answer. So Christmas would probably be number one, you know, the birth of Christ, you know, time with family, giving gifts and all those types of things, receiving some cool gifts every now and then. But I really love the 4th of July. I think the 4th of July is so much fun. Um, now for me, a lot of you guys go out to the lake on the 4th of July and that's kind of your thing. Maybe you got a lake house or like, I, I really don't like the lake. The lake's not my favorite place because that's where the sun is, right? And so for me, I don't really like, I've got a lot of tattoo work and so I try to keep the sun off my tattoos. Also, I'm a ginger, so I try to keep the sun off me at all times anyway. And so the, the idea of like going to the lake and having my shirt off all day, driving around and drinking beer and all that, that's not really my thing. But I do like the reminder that America is a great country and that we were founded on these amazing, amazing principles by these genius level men that had different levels of wisdom than we could ever fathom as individuals. And they did incredibly difficult things and risked their lives in order to where today I could speak into this microphone without, you know, the thought that someone's going to come in here and rip it away from me and, you know, throw me in handcuffs and put me in jail. Um, so I think it's a great reminder. I'm looking forward to teaching my sons the American history that they may or may not be getting at school. Um, the things that, you know, they're going to be told they should be 
ashamed of about our country or that they individually should be ashamed of because of something that they didn't actually do, but someone that actually looked like them did it way back in the day to people that looked not like them. I mean, I'm excited to teach them about the history of this country. I think the 4th of July will be a great opportunity for that. It'll be summertime. There'll probably be baseball and some other things going on, but be able to stop and tell them and talk to them about everything that, uh, that they're going uh, through as, as a country, that this isn't anything new, but it's something that is worth preserving and conserving. So I'm excited to do that. All right, guys, before we let you go, we are going to do a quick resilience boost. As you know, at Undaunted Life, our mission is equipping men to push back darkness with content that forges spiritual, mental, and physical resilience. And just to be honest with you, I forgot what I was supposed to put in the quick resilience boost. So I'm going to go have to go back and listen to this later and put some stuff in the show notes. So I will go ahead and put in there a, a link to our uh, Apple podcast so you guys can go there. Again, we would really, really appreciate it if you would click on that. Pull over to the side of the road, do that real quick. Make sure you're in a safe area. Give us five stars and another review. But I'll try to sneak some other things in there that we talked about in the show as well. All right, guys, thanks so much for listening to the show. We do appreciate it wherever you're listening to this. Please subscribe, rate. And leave us a positive five-star review. There it is again. If you want me to come speak live at your event or on your podcast, just shoot me an email to info at undaunted.life. That's I-N-F-O at undaunted.life. You can follow us on Instagram and like us on Facebook and also check out our website for everything else, including how to donate to keep more content like this coming your way. Just go to www.undaunted.life. We also want to thank the band August Burns Red for allowing us to use their music for our content. The music on this podcast is their song Cutting the Ties, which is off their 10th anniversary re-recording of their album Leveler. The links are in the description. I'm your host, Kyle Thompson. Remember, keep pushing back darkness, keep forging spiritual, mental, and physical resilience, keep seeking the Lion of Judah. <laughs>